What I'm going to do here is um, briefly introduce the general principles that I take to be at least operative and necessary for appreciating poetry, and then go through two poems that you've got there on paper and work through the poems in a way that exemplifies those principles at work. I should get my clock out. Make sure I don't go long or short. Okay, first uh, principle, if you will. I shouldn't even put it that way. There aren't really principles in the usual sense of the word. Uh, there's no system. There's no method here. It's not mathematics. It's not even philosophy. It's not auto repair. Poetry isn't any of these things. So we should be careful to avoid saying, first you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, as if we're robots or something like that. There's not a system. There are guidelines, if you will, general good practices, best practices, but there's not a system to follow. Well, what I want to propose is this, that poetry is, and here I'm going to be ripping off of Tom Howard. If you don't know Tom Howard, get to it. Drop it, as he would say, I knew him a little bit, drop everything and go. Uh, he was probably the greatest prose writer I'm aware of in the past 50 years. Catholic convert, apologist, anything he wrote is beautifully written and fun to read. You will need a thesaurus next to you, or a dictionary, I guess, both. You'll need both next to you when you read him. But the way he puts it is this, that language, uh, sorry, that poetry is language organizing experience ceremonially. Language elevating our common or even sometimes uncommon experience of the world by imposing a form on it so that we attend to it more carefully. And here are, his, here are his exact words that I think are really helpful in a book called Chance or the Dance, highly recommended. Top five books for graduates of Thomas Aquinas College to read immediately, in my opinion. Here's what he says. What would otherwise escape us is halted and addressed by poetic language. Or, more accurately, we are halted. It is as though poetry laid a hand on our arm and said, Now, steady, you are missing this in your prosaic dash past experience, and it's worth not missing this. This is part of the business of poetry, from the nursery rhyme up to the divine comedy. It addresses our imagination. And, with everything that is at its service, it tries to beguile us into the intense awareness of experience, speaking the language that is suggested to us by our imaginations as the real language of things. End quote. He actually spent almost a chapter on a nursery rhyme in this book, examining it just carefully and wonderfully. One foot up and one foot down, that's the way the London town. Just that. He spends five pages on it. What's that poem doing? It's not nonsense. Huh? Attentive readers and the poets themselves witness to this ceremonial or what we might call formal character of poetry. 
The poet lays before us an experience of the world, which would include possibly an experience of ourselves as members of the world, that is expressed with the full imaginative power of which words are capable. The tone and the connotations or suggestiveness of individual words or phrases, rhyme and rhythm and word order among the words, metaphor and its meanings, etc., are all at the poet's disposal. This means that readers of poetry, that we as readers of poetry, and if we're not readers of poetry, we're not truly liberally educated, we must lovingly attend to all of this. We must take it in. We must even revel in it. We must enjoy it. Uh, how do you say that? You must enjoy this. Well, try. try. A couple points about this. The meaning of the poem, I would suggest, strongly suggest, is not separated from the ceremonial qualities, if you will, from the poetic devices, from the meter, from the tone, from the images, from the themes, because it's not separated from the experience that's expressed with all of those qualities. The experience is expressed with the words, using the power that the words have to express it. And that power is not just, what does this word mean, but how does this word make you feel, among other things. putting it maybe more philosophically, the words of poems and of stories in general are sensible things. Right? St. Augustine tells us this. They move our imagination. They move our emotions in various ways. That's what words do. And at the same time, and this is the important part, in and through and with that power to move our emotions and our imaginations, they signify something for us to contemplate. So our minds and our imaginations and our emotions are all put into play at the same time in poetry. And for those of you who want to read more Kant, I think Kant is best on this very subject. Third critique, critique of judgment, the critique of aesthetic judgment. This is what he says. The intellect and the imagination are at play together, he says, when we behold the beautiful. One more uh, corollary, if you will, from all this to suggest before we dive into the first poem. What this means is that the mean, it's better to speak of and think of poems as having meanings rather than messages. Message suggests strip away all of that ceremonial detail, metaphor and alliteration and rhyme and meter and images and tone and get to the, the prose statement of the poem. The poets would say, well, now I no longer have a poem. You just dissected it into something that it's not. Uh, you have a meaning in a poem rather than a message. And the meaning is laden with all the qualities that the poetic uh, devices give it. Okay. So, the first poem. From Shakespeare. Good place to start, I would think. Even if you think his sonnets aren't as great as his plays, I didn't want to read the whole play for you today. So what do we do first? We read the poem out loud. So I will do so. 
Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold. Bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day, as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire, that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Again, no system here, but I would suggest a fruitful way in is to start with the poetic devices. Rhyme, what's the rhyme pattern and what's the basic metrical pattern? So let's start with that. The rhyme is pretty straightforward, pretty common for sonnet form in Shakespeare, which is of course different from sonnet form in Petrarch or others. So we have an A, B, A, B, hold and cold, hang and sang, and then we switch. C, D, C, D. Day and West becomes Way and Rest. And then again, E, F, and E, F. And then at the end, G, G. A, B, C, D, E, F, G just means variables. Why is this important? Who cares? Well, A, it's fun. It makes it interesting. It grabs your attention. Rhyme is a way to remember things remember things, to hold them in your imagination and memory. It's enjoyable. It arrests your attention and says, pay attention. But it does more than that, oftentimes, and I think here is an example. It divides the poem for us. A and B and A and B are part one. C and D and C and D are part two. E and F and E and F are part three. G, G is part four. So we have what the poets call three quatrains, and a couplet. We have a four-part poem. So we already have a poetic device suggesting at least a structure for the meaning of the poem. So we should be prepared to think about the first four lines together, the next four lines with each other, the third four lines with each other, and the couplet on its own. Meter, the fun part. This is, of course, iambic pentameter which almost all of English poetry prior to 19-something was written in. You might say, well, it's because Milton wrote so many lines of poetry. Yes, yes. But the poets will say, and poet, scholars of poetry will suggest that iambic is the natural rhythm of English, prose and speech, and therefore English is iambic. You can do trochaic poetry. It sounds a little strange, but it can be done. I think the Song of Hiawatha is done that way. So iambic pentameter. 
What does that mean, or what does it matter? Well, again, it gives us a rhythm to the story, which helps our imaginations and helps our memories to grab hold of it and to remember the lines. If you didn't have rhythm when you were an epic poet reciting Homer back in the day, good luck memorizing all that. You need the rhythm, the meter there. So that's one element. But the other is that there are times where the poet breaks away from the iambic pentameter. So pentameter means we've got five feet in the line, and iam has two syllables, so we have ten syllables. But there are times where you don't have the ba-dum, 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 which is iambic pentameter. You switch it. Do we note the places where he switches it? Sometimes it's not clear. In English, it's kind of a mess, because it's based on stress, which is very subjective in many cases. But the obvious places where we have uh, substitutions, where we change from an iambic foot to some other kind of foot, are in the fourth line. The start is not da-dun-da-dun, that time when yellow upon we come to bear ruined. Boom, boom. Too stressed immediately at the beginning of the line. Aspondi, as they call it. What does that do? It grabs our attention. Something is important here. Pay attention. Something is shifting. Something's being highlighted. Something is there for us to attend to. A couple other places. Black Knight in the seventh line, which by and by Black Knight. Boom, boom. Three straight stressed. Ooh, that's nice. Three straight stressed syllables. Yeah. Attention, Black Knight. Next line, death's second self. It takes longer to say that, and you stress it. A couple other places, deathbed. Uh, line 11 there, as the deathbed. That's a trochee rather than an I am. It's deathbed, not deathbed. So yes, don't make this, the sound of the words fit what you think the pattern should be. But just read it as it naturally reads. I remember that line from the manual of readings. Euclid alone has looked on beauty bears. How some people want to read it, because that's the, the rhythm. No, Euclid alone. Read it as it sounds. And lastly, uh, this thou at the beginning of the couplet. This is emphasized more than thou is in natural speech. This thou perceivest. Bum, 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 bum. So we have our attention drawn right there, too. So the point here is the meter gives us a kind of basic pattern that we get used to that's home. Da-dun, 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 da-dun is home in the poem. But there are times where the poet says, go out of the house for a moment and look at something and then go back. Now, why these places? You're going to be asking why in those one, two, three, four, five locales do we have a different meter? More about that later. At this, in this kind of mulling over the poem, I would say at this point it's also good to note the poetic devices in play, and I can't go into all of them because there's way too many. But one that I love and that I think is significant here is alliteration. When the same consonant sound is made at the beginning of words that are back to back. You have alliteration. So there's a few spots where that happens here. The fourth line 
the sweet birds sang. There's three S's right there. Sweet birds sang. It's minor, but it's there. And then at line eight, this one's not minor at all. Death's second self that seals up all in rest. Like snakes slithering in that line there. Lots of S's. So it's worth noting these locations again and how they fit in. The emphasis that that gives will play into the meaning of the poem. Or at least the connotations of the poem. Okay. Blowing through a whole bunch of other possible topics, I think it's worth thinking about what we usually think about when we analyze poetry. Analyze, not quite the right word there. Who's speaking? To whom is he speaking, if there's anybody being spoken to? What are the principal themes of the poem? What are the principal images of the poem? And what's the tone of the poem? The speaker here is probably pretty clearly an older man. The one he's speaking to isn't so clear, but when you read the other sonnets surrounding this one in Shakespeare's work of 150 sonnets, um, it's pretty clear this is speaking to a, to a younger man, the fair youth, the fair youth, who's addressed in most of Shakespeare's sonnets. What's the basic content? This is the dangerous part of the poem where we tend to think the poem is just this content. If you had to summarize the poem, the speaker is saying, my age is showing more and more, and I'm tending toward death. At the end, he's saying something about your love for me despite that. That's a good start, huh? What are the themes? Old age, pretty obviously the theme here. Love, which doesn't become clear until the couplet at the very end of the poem. And death, which is clear all the time through the poem. Kind of a dark poem that way, huh? Images. Lots of images in this poem. And these map on to the, the division that I said the rhyme suggests to us. So if you look through the first four lines, the first quatrain, we have a pretty common set of images here. We have autumn, fall. Yellow leaves, or none, or few, hang upon the branches of the tree. That's the metaphor there. We have a dying tree, or dying trees, leaves and branches. They're described as bare ruined choirs. For those of you who know anything about the reference there, choir stalls is what he's referring to. The monks would be in the choir stalls where late the sweet birds sang, because the monks sang in the choir stalls. So the trees are being described as if they're choir stalls where the monks sang, but the monks are really the birds singing in the trees. But they're bare and they're ruined choir stalls. It's not springtime, it's fall. The end of fall, maybe. In the second quatrain, he announces the image there pretty early on, twilight. It's... Now we're talking about day, day and night, and the time of day is twilight. Sunset, or really after sunset. Nighttime is approaching, and night is being described as death, or death's second self. 
And the third quatrain, a fire. But more specifically, a fire that's dying. Ashes. The fire is now ashes. As the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. That's just magnificent. The fire is being consumed by the wood that it used to nourish it. And now that wood is drowning it, if you will. That wood is ashes that are making it end, making an end of it. And lastly, the tone. What's the tone of the poem? I would suggest it's reflective and somber, and that might be underselling it a bit. It might be darker than that, but it's at least reflective and somber. Okay, so that's the, the basics there. Now we have to think about the movement of the poem. We've looked at individual quatrains, we've looked at metrical and other poetic devices and how they play in, but is there a movement to the poem? Is there a, a narrative? It's more clear in long works of literature that you have narrative, but even poetry has something like narrative. So I'll make three suggestions about narrative here or progression, or you might call it plot, to use the word that our translators translate Aristotle into, plot. Firstly, it seems to me the imagery of the poem becomes progressively less vivid and more static. So we move from autumn's yellow leaves and boughs when it's cold, there's birds, and these are choir stalls, to twilight, the end of the day, sunset in the west, and black night, to the fire, its ashes as a deathbed. We don't have as much imagery as we did in the first and second quatrain. And we don't have the same vivid character of the images, it seems to me. There's more abundant imagery in the earlier quatrains and less abundant imagery in the later quatrains. This is reflected. This is the second observation I would make. This is reflected in the fact that time contracts in these quatrains from one to the next to the next. What do I mean? The first quatrain is about a season. Autumn. Death is one season away, winter. Two, the second quatrain is about the span of a day, from a season to a day. Death is hours away, meaning night is at most hours away. Two, a declining fire where death is imminent. It's about ready to happen. So the time period suggested by the images and the quatrains contract from a season to a day to minutes. Why does any of this matter, these observations? This serves to highlight the impermanence of existence. You're declining closer and closer towards the end. Autumn will become winter. Day becomes twilight and then night and the glowing fire will expire. That's the way that fire is presented here. Now, the danger is to think of fire as always meaning one thing in every poem, but be careful about that. How fire is presented here depends on the other images and the context of the poem. 
So this doesn't mean that you should read fire in the Iliad this way, say. You could, but you'd have to justify it from the Iliad. And to do that, you need to look at all about 200 instances of, the, uh, of fire in the Iliad. It's, it's a lot. It's the image of the Iliad. So we have a, a slipping away of permanence. We have finality ever more put into our faces as we read this poem. The end is nigh. The end is nigh. To put it very darkly, the end is nigh. To put it in terms of the imagery, it gets starker and starker. From yellow leaves and bare ruined choirs where the birds used to sing, we get a fire that's about ready to be put out. So it's more and more stark, closer and closer to the end. All of that serves to heighten our awareness of the end of things, the approaching end. So there's a progression there in the poem's meaning, which is highlighted by a progression in the imagery. Now you might say, what about the couplet at the end? What do you do with that? I'm always stuck with this couplet. I don't quite know how to read it. I think there are two possible ways that both work. <clears throat> Either the fair youth perceives the old age of the speaker, and this makes the youth's love more strong because he's going to soon leave the speaker when the speaker dies. I think that's probably the right way to read it. But you could also read it as the fair youth perceiving aging in himself, which makes his love more strong because he must soon leave his own youthfulness behind. It's also possible. Now you might say, Mr. Cooper, you have to answer that question to tell me what the poem means. And I would say, no, I don't. <laughs> it's a poem. It's not Aristotle. Poems can mean many things. Shakespeare could have one in mind and the other in the back of his mind as something to toy, to toy with us a little bit. It's quite possible. Or he could have both in mind. Or, as Melville said, I didn't have that in mind at all to somebody who asked it. But it's there. It sure is. <laughs> I've told half of you this. Tolkien wrote a letter to his son about writing the Fellowship for the Ring. He said, I'm, I'm getting there. Hobbits are in Bree. They're the Prancing Pony. Strider is there. I gotta find out why he's there. Either way, however you read the couplet, the poem I would suggest does this. And I'm gonna summarize, and it's always dangerous to summarize poems, but we talk about them in seminar and you have no choice but to do so, acknowledging, of course, the inadequacy of doing that, but I'll try. The poem celebrates human love precisely insofar as the object loved changes, grows old and passes away. And it does so by exquisitely and powerfully describing in imaginative language, metaphor here, the state of old age as it nears death. So you can say that, that's the poem's meaning. Okay, is that more impressive or is reading the poem more impressive? You better say reading the poem is more impressive. Yeah. Okay, so much for Shakespeare. Next poem. One of my favorites. I must confess to loving this more than Shakespeare. Scandal. Robert Frost, Nothing Gold Can Stay. 
Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. absolute gem of a poem. What's there to this? Let me tell you what there is to this. Rhyme and meter. Start there. Rhyme's pretty easy here, huh? A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D. Meter. Robert Fussell, a great scholar of poetry, says... The poet makes a contract with the reader at some point early in the poem. The contract is, here's the meter to expect. The contract here is iambic pentameter. But the first foot of the poem is not an iamb. So the contract takes a while to draw up and sign. Nature's, that's a trochee. It's not nature's first green is gold. Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Iambic, but not pentameter. Not pentameter. Three feet to a line, huh? Trimeter. What about the last line? You heard it, and it hit your imagination, but you might not have registered it. It's missing a syllable. It doesn't say, da-nothing gold can stay. You don't have six syllables. Nothing gold can stay. I think this is what is described in our current or only former sophomore language manual as a headless line. We're missing the first syllable. It pounds you again, just like nature pounds you with the stress first. Nature, which is not iambic but trochaic, Same thing here. Nothing, nothing. And it does it again. Nothing gold can stay. So those are the two points of emphasis metrically in the poem. Metrically. But there are also points of emphasis in terms of the sound. Nature and nothing alliterate. They both start with the nasal N. So they're joined together in our imagination, or should be, if we're attentive, as being given co-pride of place in terms of emphasis in the poem. They're also the first and last line. There's another reason why they're linked together in the poem. Poetic devices. First, alliteration. Green and gold, of course, alliterate. (coughs) Hardest, her hardest hue to hold. Beautiful, simple. And then second to last line, dawn goes down to day. The D, the D, and the D. A second poetic device here is paradox. I think there's two instances, but there's certainly at least one. So first, green is gold 
think is paradox. You might call it something else, but I would suggest that it's paradoxical. But what's really paradoxical is dawn goes down today. I'll say more about that in a minute. So those are amongst the many, some amongst the many poetic devices at work in the poem that we can attend to and should attend to. They give us a basis for thinking about meaning, the meaning of the poem. What's being emphasized? What's being, how are we being moved? What are we being, what's capturing our attention in the poem? The speaker, who speaks the poem? Pretty unclear. Someone who beholds and contemplates with great attention and lovingly the natural world. It's about as specific as I can get with the speaker here. You might say, well, Frost had this person in mind because from his letters he said, well, okay, fine, but that's outside the poem. Hard to know that, huh? If you just read the poem, it's more general. What are the themes of the poem? Well, the first word, nature. This is not a, there's no word for this in the poem, but there are expressions of it. Spring, spring is in the poem. And really, spring as fleeting, as slipping away. And lastly, clearly by the end of the poem, loss. The lamentation of loss. What's been lost? The garden. Which garden? The Eden sank to grief. A little side note here. Some scholars who study what's called lyric poetry sometimes, what we normally just call poetry, um, divide poems into three kinds. Poems where you're anticipating something good, poems where you're enjoying the good, and poems where you're lamenting the good. And what are the three, what are the goods that you're anticipating, enjoying, or lamenting. There are three, traditionally. God, the woman, and the garden, the natural world. I suggest that as a helpful way of thinking about poetry. Not a system, not a method, suggestion. What are the images? Colors, colors, green and gold. Leaves and flowers, time, we have hour, and we have day, and I think day there means daytime or midday, and then we have dawn, so various portions of or parts of the day are prominent in the poem. Eden is here, he's not bashful about that. And lastly, the tone. What's the tone? This is hard to describe. I need more words, better vocabulary. But it seems to me that it begins with quiet delight and ends with dismay or lamentation. I'm very open to that being better expressed in different, more precise words. But I think it's something like that. Okay, let's work through the poem like we did with the prior poem, and get a sense of the progression or the plot, if you will, 
of the poem. The first line, I mean, they're all magnificent, but this is utterly magnificent. Nature's first green is gold. What's he talking about? The first green of spring, the first leaves that come out from wintertime. Come over to my place sometime and I'll show you them. They're right there, they're there. The precious glory of early spring. What does that mean more generally? It means burgeoning life in the natural world. Life is returning to the world. It's burgeoning, it's new. Why does he call it gold? Paradoxically, the green is gold because it sparkles. It captures our eyes, and more obviously, maybe it's precious, like gold is precious. Second line, her hardest hue to hold. It's hard to maintain that. This, the glory of new life, of early spring, is difficult to preserve. It's difficult to maintain. And as it turns out, it's impossible to maintain. How about the next three lines? Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. The Goethe reading for freshman science springs to mind here. Huh? I don't know how literally he means that. You could take it as metaphorical, but he might mean that too. The first leaf is a flower and it becomes a leaf. But either way, what he's saying is that the, the moment of glory is fleeting. Early spring quickly changes to late spring and then to summer. And the leaves are different. The green is different. The green of summer avocado trees is dark and beautiful, but it's different. The first ones, the first leaves are different greens. They're different. Mr. Nader likes to talk about the jasmine right up here. Morning smell versus evening smell of jasmine is different. I haven't quite figured that out yet myself. I can't tell, but he can tell. The greens are certainly different in the leaves. The flowers are fleeting. That's nice alliteration, too. And the leaf subsides to leaf. What does that mean? The leaf subsides to leaf. Leaf becomes leaf, but subsides is much better than becomes, isn't it? It subsides. It falls somehow it slowly droops into a different leaf. Right? The, the green, initially brilliantly green or gold leaf subsides and a new leaf takes its place. Or a new color takes its place. Subsides. Gently falls, you might say. That's the connotation of the word subsides. This is why Frost is a first-rate poet, among other things. I would have said, then leaf turns into leaf, or leaf becomes leaf. Terrible. Boring. Subsides to leaf. Yeah. The next two lines are clearly analogies. So and so. This is, of course, not the so that means conclusion, but the so that means in the, in the same way. So we have two analogies here. What are they doing? He's likening the fleeting moment that he's describing and the trajectory of that moment to two things. First, the movement from Eden to grief, which in the Bible is, of course, in the span of a couple chapters, one chapter. Pretty quick, huh? 
Things begin well but end badly. They end sorrowfully. And then the second one that I promised I'd talk about earlier. Earlier I promised I'd talk about later, put it that way. The movement from dawn to daytime. The paradox of dawn going down today. I would never have been able to think of this line, to think it up. Dawn goes down today. It alliterates and is paradoxical. Why does he say it that way? The sun rises from dawn today, and he says it the opposite way. From dawn today. He presents dawn, in other words, as if it's the acme. It's the pinnacle. And daytime is that to which dawn falls like subsides, the leaf subsides to leaf, dawn subsides into day. Dawn descends, if you will, to midday, noonday. Why? The first moments of life in the world seem to be being presented as the best. And what comes later is lesser. And that fits with the Eden imagery. The beginning is best. And the last line, maybe the last, maybe the best line of the poem, <laughs> nothing gold can stay. What a magnificent expression of the impermanence, the sorrow at the impermanence, the loss of what's valuable and precious in the natural world. The gold is lost. So recall the metrical anomaly here. Nothing. We have a headless line, or at least a different meter going on here. This line is being emphasized right at the beginning. Boom. Nothing gold can stay. So the whole line is emphasized, but especially the head of the line, which is headless, if you will, is emphasized. And that metrical emphasis buttresses and supports, re-emphasizes the lamentation of the line. It calls your your mind to attention. Pay attention to this line. Why? Because it's lamentable. (laughs) It's lamentation. You might say it's a kind of summary of the expressions or the tones or the feelings of the poem by the end. But he didn't summarize it by saying, how dreadful is this? Or, woe is us. No, no, no. He used the imagery of the poem. Gold came back to gold. He said it imaginatively. So what's this poem doing, if you will, if you want to put it that way? How should we, if compelled with guns to heads, to say what the poem is saying or meaning? Maybe something like this. The poem celebrates, try to use emotional language here, it celebrates the glorious beauty of burgeoning life in the natural world and in the space of eight lines, laments the brevity, the impermanence, and the loss of that precious glory in the world. So you could say, nothing beautiful remains. Everything good passes away. We had Eden, and now we're in fallen world. All true. Isn't this a much more beautiful and powerful way to say that? If you want to say this is saying that. So, 
Let me go back to the beginning briefly. I'm suggesting here that poetry crystallizes, if you will, human experience. It lays open the world as we are capable of perceiving it and of experiencing it through the power of imagination and speech. So let me read what Tom Howard said again. It's worth saying many times. What would otherwise escape us if we did not read the poem is halted and it's addressed by poetic language. It puts it before our eyes. Or more accurately said, we are halted. It's as though poetry laid a hand on our arm and said, now steady, you are missing this in your prosaic dash past experience and it's worth not missing this. This is part of the business of poetry from the nursery rhyme to the divine comedy. It addresses our imagination, and with everything that is at its service, it tries to beguile us into the intense awareness of experience, speaking the language that's suggested to us by our own imagination as the real language of things. Questions? Other ideas? Discussions? All of the above? Mr. Wozniak? Chance or the dance? It basically says, do you want to choose to view the universe as a great dance, all of the medievals? The Divine Comedy is what he has in mind. Or is it just all chance? Secularism, Christianity. And he lays them out to you and what that would mean in daily life very concretely. It's not a philosophical word. Very concretely what that looks like. Oh my goodness. The ways of error are much more than the way of the way of truth. How's Aristotle say it in the ethics? Many more ways to go wrong than to be right? Uh, wow. Uh, well the first is vacuity. Using trite expressions that have been worn out too much to mean anything specific. Cool. The usual way we'd use that word in a poem would not be anything but vacuous. Um, so uh, not having a mastery of the language makes it very easy to have bad or at least mediocre poetry. Um, I think this is somewhat controversial perhaps, but I would suggest that when most poets try intentionally and very consciously to get a message across, the poetry is bad. That's not always true. Uh, but it's th the more you're conscious about trying to express something that's a message or a moral, I think the more difficult it is to write the poem in a way that's not propaganda. The poem itself should speak from its own power, not because the author is forcing a message into it. Now you say, the fairy queen. Or the divine comedy. Dante's pretty darn conscious of a lot of things in the divine comedy. Um, so I don't want to press too hard on that position. Um, well, you might say, the fairy queen is bad poetry. C.S. Lewis didn't think so. He thought it was the work of one of the top five poets in the history of, English of the English language. Um, but I think in general, 
the poet is at the service of the story and the imagery rather than forcing it to convey a particular message. And that's how great literary writers, to the degree that we have knowledge of their inner workings, which is rare, they seem to express the inner workings as I'm in service of the story rather than I've got a point to make. Um, not having an ear, an ear for meter. Now, of course, a lot of modern poetry has no meter. Okay. Um, Aristotle says you need to be a genius um, with or at metaphor. With regard to metaphor, you have to be some kind of genius. I think that's right, too. Choosing the right metaphor, the right image is very difficult to do. Are there other ways that strike us as ways of being bad in poetry? Being false? Yeah. You mean like portraying the good as bad or the bad as good? Yeah, although it would be more important for um, an ancient Greek or uh, other culture to have that for the sake of the memory because they didn't have the technology to keep it written. Whereas for us, it's less important because we can just hit save. There it is, forever and ever and ever. I, yeah, modern poetry I'm not very well versed in. I'm, no pun intended. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to think well, I know, yeah, I'm pretty sure that what's happening there is the same thing as in modern art, that modern artists and poets are attempting to break away from the formal structures of their art, which they think of as rigid and uh, slavish. Um, so they're being iconoclastic for that reason, and I think there's something necessary about such movements when poetry and other arts become overly rigid. But it does strike me that it goes too far. Um, that being said, when poetry ceases being metrical, it becomes prose, and we have things called novels and short stories for those kinds of things, right? Um, Aristotle didn't seem to envision explicitly that kind of literature. He does refer briefly to something like that. Um, but we have it in spades, right? Short stories and, and the novel. So it doesn't seem as if it's become something that's verboten by not having meter. It just seems like it's something different. What about him? Well, What's that? No, Hopkins does have meter, but I'm yeah. thinking that he <clears throat> kind of has his own rules. Well, he thinks of them as the ancient Anglo-Saxon rules, basically. Okay. Yeah. So he thinks he's following a long, uh, forgotten, if you will, uh, pattern or standard of meter in poetry. That's why a lot of his words are so Anglo-Saxon and glorious, right? He, to use a lot of Latin words in English is to be less vivid and more abstract. And to be Anglo-Saxon is to be more concrete. And that gives him a lot of power, I think. But yeah, trying to analyze his meter is 
deathly difficult. I, I find it deathly difficult because he's not adhering to the usual patterns for meter. But there are there are patterns he's adhering to. Yeah. To what extent, I guess, like to what extent do you have like when do you detect meter? Do you guys just like phase figure different something with like Shakespeare sonnets and other and the That's a hard question because it's an artifact after all, and we, so we make the rules in some, in some sense, uh, to some extent. Uh, if it's just in virtue of the completeness of the thought, then it wouldn't be metrical yet. Or if it's just in the completeness of the sound, it would not be metrical yet. So it'd have to be something to do with the, the natural rhythm of the language to make it a metrical decision. In English, that's dictated by stress and lack of stress. In Spanish, it is not about stress. And in the Romance languages, that stress is not the, the standard or the pole around which meter revolves. It's, uh, in English, we demand stress. That's precisely what meter consists in, stress and unstress. Um, it's long and short in Romance. Right? The problem with English is that stress partly includes long and short. It takes longer to say some things, and that makes them stressed in English. But stress is really complicated in English, and not so. Con and so it's more difficult to analyze English poetry. Um, people disagree: is this stressed or unstressed? Whereas in ancient Greek, there are rel relatively speaking fewer cases where it's dis where it's controversial. So I think, yeah, the point is though. I think um, you need to have a rhythmical standard or. Um, basis for the decision where the line ends for it to be put into metrical form. Any other decision would be um, not metrical. Doesn't make it illegitimate, it just makes it not metrical. Yeah. I, just, I do think it depends. I don't think there's any universal order of higher or hierarchy there. Um, although, I might say this, that, um, well, generally, without saying universally, meter might be more important than the others. But amongst the others, is paradox more important than simile or metaphor or 
assonance or other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's hard to know. I think it just depends on the poem. Apparently, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I don't know enough languages to know for certain. Yeah. Yeah. But English is more suitable for the iambic line. Right. So some people, and I think they're usually English scholars or poets, say that English is one, one of the most suitable languages. Um, partly because it's a it's the mutt of languages. It's the one made of so many languages. <laughs> Greek and Latin and French and Spanish all have, uh, and Germanic and the Anglo-Saxon all figure prominently in English uh, linguistics. So um, there's a kind of power. Uh, uh, we have a breadth of vocabulary that gives um, a power and a range to English poetry that other languages wouldn't have. Then again, you might say, well, but does English sound so good when you speak it? No, I don't think so. I don't think English is as beautiful to recite as French or Spanish or Italian. So it's, there's trade-offs. But I think in terms of the vocabulary, I think many people think, and probably rightly so as far as I can tell, that English is in the upper echelon of uh, having a, in terms of the poet having a palette of words to choose from when he is making crafting a poem. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, sometimes when you read a book, you can only reread it after a certain length of time. So right. You can't return to it, but is it dumb to like, sit here and reread this over and over again? No, no. But I wouldn't just reread it robotically. I, I drive home sometimes, and I just think about a line of, of this poem in particular. I just meditate on the line. And I realize, oh, there's more alliteration here than I realize. Oh, this fits with this part of the poem. Oh, there's this going on. So just dwelling on lines individually is really helpful, too. But I think normally you read it and enjoy it, and you read it again, and you attend to certain parts of it, and your mind, our minds at least, being trained in the way that we are here, are inclined to start making connections quickly, which is fine, but just don't make them too quickly, right? First start just to appreciate and get the matter for the connection-making. Um, if we're going to tend towards any direction, I would say tend towards taking longer to get the matter ready, if you will, to, put, to use a TAC image, to get the matter ready for the connection making, take a long time for that rather than reading it once, okay, what's the meaning? Right, take, take your time with that. Yeah. Is there a distinction between appreciating poetry and enjoying poetry? Oh, that's a good question, yeah. I think so. Are you thinking this, that uh, to, you can appreciate something you don't enjoy? Yeah, I think that's true. What are you thinking? How do I go, how do I go from appreciating it to enjoying it? Right. 
I think you have to, well, dabbling around in different kinds of poetry helps. So you might have first been introduced, say, anybody might have been introduced in high school to uh, George Herbert poetry. He's one of the great poets, but it's a little stodgy for modern taste, probably. You think, well, I just don't like poetry. Well, you haven't even tried anything beyond George Herbert. So try John Donne, who, to my mind, is one of the greatest. Well, if you don't like that, then just move forward 200 years. Try Keats. If you don't like that, then try Frost. And try, keep moving forward. Just try all sorts of different ones and find something you enjoy and then latch onto that, I would say. And then being able to enjoy it and then mull it over, turning it over in your mind and your memory with all of these considerations of uh, meter and imagery and tone and poetic devices will get you used to, or will, get, will habituate you to seeing, not seeing really, to feeling and experiencing poetry more deeply. And then you could go back to something like one of the great masters like John Donne and think, oh, okay, I, sh I missed something there when I first read it. So that's probably the way to go. And that's why people like Dana Joya um, lament the way we teach poetry these days. We, we don't teach it as something to appreciate it. It's more like history. Right? And we don't, yeah, we don't treat it as something to, to, to find something enjoyable and just to enjoy that. I think he would say much of what I'm saying, um, or better yet, I'm ripping off of him probably, <laughs> by saying, find a poet that you enjoy. So I, for example, I, um, I don't enjoy Shakespeare's sonnets as much as some people do. I prefer John Donne. Do I think John Donne's better? Maybe. That's dangerous. Um, <laughs> maybe. But I do enjoy John Donne more. Um, and Hopkins I enjoy more than maybe someone like Wordsworth, but I realize that Hopkins probably isn't generally recognized as as great a poet as Wordsworth. So there is that distinction. Yeah. But yeah, go with what you love at first. Find something you love, I guess, first. Yeah. The Norton Anthology of English Poetry is enormous. Um, like that thick. You can just start going through it. Um, you can start with the most ancient, which would be... Well, it's unfair. Beowulf is... English in one sense. Um, but there's good translations of it. Um, and there you see what Hopkins is getting at with the, the stress. So the, the lines of Beowulf, every line is divided into two. And Tolkien argues in his magnificent essay on Beowulf that the whole poem was divided into two, not three, as we commonly think. Um, and it's based on just the number of stresses, not based on the number of syllables. It's a whole different kind of poetry that might be really enjoyable. Again, it's not modern English, so it has to be translated. And Chaucer's the same way, really enjoyable, but usually we have to translate it. Although I would suggest that we, we could read Chaucer in the Middle English with prominent marginal notes. To, if, we read, if we read less Chaucer per night, we could do that. It's not that hard, actually. Yeah. So that's what I would suggest. Yeah. Do you want... Mm -hmm. How important is composition versus reading? Well, traditionally, it's part of being liberally educated is composing poetry, having the power to do so because of the power to read and appreciate good poetry. And that power to compose bespeaks some level of mastery of your own language, which is the, uh, as a prerequisite, 
also seems to belong to being liberally educated in a way that's similar to more material than formal, uh, the liberal art of grammar, where we, where we grab hold of, uh, in Mr. Nieto's beautiful essays in sophomore year, we get to see that we, we acquire a grasp of the order of our speech as reflecting an order of thought as coming from an order in reality. I think an order, a mastery of our language, the vocabulary and meaning and power of the language is a, belongs to that order, if you will, that subject matter. Um, not as, I'm getting vague here, not as formally, but as more materially to the liberally educated. How long would you recommend holding off composing? Yeah. I don't know. I, I personally, I'm very reluctant to put pen to paper because I'm very aware of my deficiencies. I didn't have a great high, high school education in poetry. Um, but I'm probably not a good model for that. I think starting earlier is probably good, even if it's bad. You got you to make bad things before you can make beautiful things. I think, yeah, so start soon. And in high school, if you're already appreciating poetry and reading a lot of it, and Frankly, by, by that time, you should have memorized many poems. By that time. I did not, and I feel and lament that. But by high school, we should already have memorized dozens of poems. And that's, that's like getting... Uh, having that and then being able to read and write poetry is like reading the great masters of prose and therefore being better prepared to be able to write good prose. So sometimes tutors will say, read Newman or Hume or Orwell if you want to get a sense of what good prose looks like so you can become a better writer. I mean, you can't just do that, otherwise A, it would take a long time. B, you start writing like them and it would sound ridiculous, perhaps. <laughs> but that's a good start, at least. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would say, if you're gonna err on one side, err on starting sooner. Don't do what I did, yeah. What would you say that poetry compares to music and like, how it influences your character? Oh. That's a hard question because I'm not positive how music does it. I just know that it does. It is, yeah. It's a kind of song without a melody. Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think it does. Poetry as opposed to narrative? Do you want to include things like Homer and Shakespeare? Uh, tragic, uh, drama? Or just what we call poetry or lyric poetry. I guess poetry insofar as it influences your character, but that seems to be, I guess, more captured in lyric poetry as opposed to the narrative because then you could get caught up in the narrative. But I think obviously Homer greatly influences yeah. poetry. Yeah, influences your character, yeah. I think so. Uh, so I think all literature influences your character deeply. What we call poetry or what you might call lyric poetry to distinguish it from dramatic or epic poetry. Um, also does so, even if you just read Frost's poems about nature, there's still an influence on your character there. One thing it requires of you, if you are attentive, is it re requires a receptivity. So reading poetry arrests your attention and compels you to attend to things that you're likely to pass by as Tom Howard, which I quoted twice, or whom I quoted twice, expresses. That itself is a virtue, and an important one for the intellectual life, and for a reflective life, an examined life, as Socrates might say. So I think that's the first and most obvious thing that it does. The second 
this depends on what you read. It's, this is very true of narrative literature, I think, and I would say also true of lyric poetry, is it makes it much more easy for you to put yourself in someone else's shoes and walk a mile in them, as we say. Um, one of the great goods of literature, it seems to me, for us, uh, and the most immediate, or maybe the first in the order of time, that we tend to get by reading good literature is living vicariously through other characters. And by that very fact, being, or if we're not already this way, being trained not to immediately be judgmental and to impose our view of things and our view of the world as if it's the be all and end all, but to learn and to be um, open to being wrong about things. Now, this is hard when you come in as 17 or 18-year-olds and read the Iliad. You want to say, well, Hector, awesome, and Achilles, just a crybaby. Well, I have lots of thoughts about that. But um, literature, I think, compels you to take a second look and say, wait a minute, is that just me? And am I wrong? What's Homer? How's Homer presenting these two characters to me? And then you walk a mile, so to speak, in Achilles' shoes. You walk 24 books in his shoes. And at the end, you see, oh, this... This is a magnificent ending. This is what happened to Achilles. Oh, you feel for him, right? And to feel for and with him is to be able more objectively to consider and to appreciate what in hand is worth appreciating rather than just to immediately judge. So that's one good. Now, past all that, um, being raised on good poetry forms you morally because it's beautiful. And that's the danger of poetry, is that the beauty of it can attract you to things that are bad if they're not really good, right, if they're bad. It'd be propaganda, I call it literally, it's propaganda. It'd be like bad advertising. Um, so good poetry would form in you, would reinforce in you the things that your parents teach you are good and noble and beautiful, and would reinforce what they teach you are ignoble and ugly and bad. Uh, so in the English tradition, for hundreds of years, it was very common to, t to speak of literature and poetry, particularly in grammar school and high school, as having that um, educational role for the youth. It forms them in the ideals. It's not just their parents saying, love this and do this, and otherwise this happens, but it's them beginning to see the beauty of these ideals for themselves through stories. So that does have a powerful role there, too, it seems to me. So the Iliad, in a way, is an expression of the Greek culture's ideals, what it finds noble, what it finds ignoble. What's noble? Um, Achilles rejecting Agamemnon's uh, attempt to take Briseis. Right? That's noble. What's ignoble? Agamemnon's taking Briseis. It's clearly ignoble in that story. There's something hypocritical about that. What's noble? Dying for your country or your people in battle. So these things are being... They're not being affirmed explicitly and, and propositionally in the Iliad. They're assumed and they're presented in, in glory and power. Um, so that's, that's why poetry is important, but it's also dangerous, right? as Plato is very aware of in the Republic. Right? Yeah, that's a long answer. A lot to say about that question. But not nearly enough to, enough to match up to the greatness of the depth of the question. No. Okay. But how do you interpret Plato? Do you think he lets the poets back in the back door? Uh, yeah, I don't know. So if he does, then I agree with him. Okay. If he doesn't, then I disagree. Yeah. 
No, that's the problem. How do you interpret the end of the Republic and the, the Ion and the Phaedrus? Uh, I think the Phaedrus is more, Phaedrus, yeah, more open to the poetic in the city than the Republic seems to be, depending on how you interpret the Republic. So yeah, I'm more on Aristotle's side, although he's not explicit about much of these things. But well, maybe he is in a few spots in the politics. It's been a long time since I've read the politics. Talk about poetry there. I think he'd be more open to it, than, I'm sure he is, than, than Plato seems to be, seems to be. certainly subjective experience. You might argue, and this gets dangerously controversial, I close my mic over here, um, objective experiences in some way, um, and that'd be a way of phrasing this question from the Summa, why is scripture written in, in metaphor, or better yet, why is it narrative, rather than propositional? There's a lot there to think about and to go wrong on, um, but it would suggest that because of our condition, God decided that the best way to reveal himself to us and reveal our nature to ourselves, to, to us, was through, in history, and through the narrative recounting of that history. Is that because we're imperfect and fallen? Quite possibly. But you might say, well, it's because we're imperfect, but not because we're fallen. If we hadn't fallen, would God have done that? Oh, yeah. That's a really big, big, big question, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it. Not quite sure. St. Thomas says very little in the first question. He wanted to say a lot more. Say, say more about this. Leave a whole question about it. He says, well, boom, boom, boom. As is usually the case in the Summa, you want him to say more, but it's just for beginners. You have to, Do you think that yeah. poetry engages more faculties of the soul than prose does? So you can't just yeah. more? Yes, but um, I think it does. It engages your emotions and your imagination and your intellect, whereas most... Most prose, or at least sciences, would be engaging your imagination and your intellect, or just your intellect. Well, with the distinctions of, uh, in metaphysics, you use your, your imagination, but you have to, anyway, I won't go into that. Um, but that, so that's the power of poetry that makes it, in a way, most connatural to us, to use Thomistic language for that. Um, but it's also its danger. And that's why poetry ultimately answers to a higher area. It answers to ethics. It has to answer to ethics. And that ethics, of course, is either a part of or answers itself to theology. So poetry is not higher than the other sciences because it uses the other powers. In fact, it's, it has to answer to ethics and to theology ultimately. Um, well, to ethics and to philosophy generally, and then most of all, it has to answer to theology. So if someone says, well, is this poem moving me the right way, should I be moved this way? The answer has to be not poetic, but it has to be uh, moral theology or philosophy. Yeah, it, it can elucidate the very concrete realities of life, mm -hmm. um, individual instances of life, and also 
the more minor general common experiences that we have together in ways that aren't capable of being expressed through mere prose. Yeah, there's actually a, a very recent work on poetry for beginners to appreciate it called All the Funs in How You Say the Thing. All the Funs in How You Say the Thing. Um, I forget who the author is. But he's getting at something that I've been spending a lot of years thinking about and at first arguing with Mr. Nieto about, but I think we now largely agree that delight, pleasure, is the proximate end of poetry. The danger in saying, well, it's about, uh, it's, it's about a, a proposition or it's about teaching. And there's something true to that, but it's pleasure that it's the, the proper end of poetry. It's not apart from teaching or propositions, but it's principally and proximately aimed at pleasure. Um, so yeah, you, it's, you don't want to abstract poetry from that proper proximate end. Like Aesop's fables, are, I always use those as an example. Are those poetry? Yeah, kind of, but they're a particular kind of poetry that's very clearly moralizing in a way. I mean moralizing in a good way, I don't mean in a bad way. Um, but that's not what most poetry does. There is allegory. The Fairy Queen is an allegory. We kind of dislike it sometimes, I think partly because we know that we're being told something covertly. And we don't like what's being told covertly because it's anti-Catholic. But if you just appreciate the, the beauty of Spencer, it's powerful. It's powerfully beautiful, the language itself. Yeah, I, I go through these poems, among other things. I have in the years past. I haven't done it in four or five years. I'd like to get it kick-started again. At poetry at lunch, once, yeah. once a week. I can pull it off. Yeah, pester me. Okay. I'd like to do that. Okay. We could read some John Donne, maybe. Love poetry. There's a lot wrapped up in that. The first danger is this, that poetry doesn't abstract from the intellect, right? It's, it uses words which are signs, and therefore it's preeminently rational. Preeminently. It's rational, put it that way. It's rational. It says things in words, and therefore speaks universals, to use philosophical language. But the things it speaks about and the way it speaks about them are paramount. Um, whereas the way you speak about it is less important 
or not important, depending on what other science you're engaged or what science you're engaged in. It's not poetry. Um, so it's not as if the senses are dominant in poetry or the emotions are dominant. It's that they are um, drawn up into the consideration and they are attended to and fed, if you will. Whereas in the higher studies, the sciences, you're um, often, not always, but often leaving the emotion out of it or leaving the senses to some extent and in some way, but not in every way, out of it. Um, to say that we just ignore the senses or have to get beyond them straight to the intellect alone without qualification is Cartesian. With qualification could be Aristotelian if you're talking about metaphysics, but you have to really qualify that claim. So there's always a danger. We, we like to speak Cartesianally. Is that an adverb? I just made it an adverb. We think that way. We're, we're Cartesians because it's in the drinking water of our 21st century culture. And we often can phrase Aristotle or phrase what we think to be the case about a science as if it's this way, but we're actually not thinking of it correctly. So there's, there's that danger I want to point out. Uh, Although when you're walking around the world sensing, you're also imagining, yeah. right? Always, you can't stop doing it. Right? You're imagining the back of this lectern. Right? You, th you know there's a lectern back, right? Yeah. And you would see it if you walked around. You don't just think there's the front, right? So you're, you're always imagining a back to, to things that you see. So yeah, your imagination's always at work is the point. Um, but you're right, in natural science, you're, you're resolving back to your senses, right? Experimentation might be one great instance of that. You have to resolve back to the evidence that your senses provide you. Not that the senses are the ultimate judge, but that they provide the evidence upon which you give an ultimate judgment. As far as I understand physics, Mr. Andre is better about that than I am, but that, that seems right to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, one thing that struck me is that I heard, uh, I heard uh, once someone wise say, the problem Kantian way of putting it. In the good sense of Kant, that's the best, <laughs> best part of Kant, in my opinion, is when he says that. Something very much like that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And in philosophy, if, if our imaginations are impoverished, our intellects are impoverished. The more I, well, as I get older, it becomes more and more obvious, especially in ethics, but just in philosophy generally, impoverished imagination is a real problem. And in life, your imagination, I've realized more and more as I've gotten older that the imagination is, its power over your actions and decisions can go unnoticed, but be dominant. And that's really dangerous. <laughs> so, yeah. You, you, you imagine you're the next part of your day, right? You're, you're imagining what it might look like, or what it should look like, or what you want it to look like, and that can dictate without you knowing it what you're going to do, rather than your reason. Can't. I'm saying can't. It doesn't have to, but it can. 
actually I was ready. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.